Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So we have uh, one of our favorite uh, ways to get into a podcast, a listener question. So I'm going to read out a question from our listener, Sarah, and she is studying Agile project management, which I think is fantastic. I remember back in the old days when we were using the stone tablets, you know, there wasn't anything you could study <laughs> about Agile project management. So I'm glad that that even exists. Um, and she has a question about a recurring issue that she encounters in self-organized teams. She says, there is often an informal leader emerging whose arguments and proposals are favored. What she sees happening is a member who isn't an informal leader proposing the same argument and getting discounted. But then when the informal leader proposes those arguments, it's cherished. She's surprised by how much this impacts emotion. It impacts emotionally to be considered the least influential in a social hierarchy. And she's looking far and wide for ways to work on such popularity norms. So I think that's a wonderful description of something that I've seen many times and that there's plenty of theory on. Jeffrey, how about you? Yeah, I, I think that's a great topic, so I'm really happy to, to discuss it. The, the thing that, it, that strikes me about this is um, it, actually when she describes the, the end, she says um, it is like the emotional impact of being the least influential in a social hierarchy because she never uses the word status. She uses the word popularity. But um, when I read when I read this, I'm thinking, you know, we are humans are social primates, and our social status within the group is hugely important to us. And so, um, yes, uh, uh, it's going to be painful to be a, a low the lower status in in the hierarchy um, because that that we've been evolved that that's a problematic place to be. The other thing that that occurred to me that she described this about something she sees in, in self organized teams. And the thing that occurred to me is, well, uh, this these things happen uh, in other places as well. But I think the idea in self-organized teams is that it it, um, it seems like worse for somehow for people if it's an unappointed leader, <laughs> if it's a, as someone who is a leader through acclamation rather than designation. Uh, uh, that this happens to, it kind of feels even less fair. <laughs> like maybe they can, people can accept the idea that it um, that it happens when when the person who's the highest paid person in the room, the hippo, says something. Um, yeah, but this this comes up a lot. So I'm really glad to discuss it. And, and let's let's talk first about this idea of it coming up around self organized teams because I know there's a classic uh, paper that, that describes this called the tyranny of structurelessness. Oh, I remember reading that so some years ago. It's so helpful. It shows just how much of the kinds of difficulties that we're having today are perfectly well known. They've been happening to humans for a very long time. This goes all the way back to the 1960s, if I'm remembering it right. I haven't gone back to read it, but we'll we'll link in the show notes and uh, highly recommend that listeners who are interested um, pull pull over if you're driving, but um, you know get get a chance uh, when you're when um, when it's uh, calm to to click on that link and read it. It's it's very well worth it. The person is describing how she came into organizations of social change in the United States. There were an awful lot of social changes happening in the 1960s and protest movements and so on. And a lot of these organizations were explicitly opposed to high degrees of structure. So they said, you know, the, the way that we got to the difficulties we have is through patriarchy and uh, dominance by white people. And, you know, we want to change those things. And so we in our organization are going to be self-organized. We will not be... Uh, 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 we will not have designated leaders of this kind. Well, the problem is that that made the uh, uh, informal leadership that much more difficult 
uh, because in particular, what you couldn't do is get rid of an informal leader who was bad. Because <laughs> at least <laughs> if, if your boss is terrible, you could go to his or her boss and say, hey, this person is terrible. Can you undesignate them? And can you designate someone else? At least there's some action you can take. Whereas if the person is sort of self-appointed or uh, appointed by acclamation, how do you undo it? When is the election when you can cause people to not be the leader anymore? So that was one of the challenges. And, and so there was really no place for people who were being marginalized in this way, often replicating the kinds of structures that they were trying to undo. So the organization might be dominated by uh, somebody who, who showed some of the characteristics that the organization was trying to eliminate, was trying to make the social change to, to, to alter. But there, there was no way you could do anything about it. You couldn't hold a vote. You couldn't um, uh, uh, recall the person uh, as you can with an elected leader and so on. So uh, that, that's one of the reasons that I think the, um, when this happens in our supposedly self-organized teams in agile development, we, we get exactly this um, emotional bind because there's no place for you to go. It's, it's worse. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't undo it. I wonder what you think about that. I think that's 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 very uh, on 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 point, which is that you see, there's no point of appeal. Um, so it feels like there's nothing. I feel like there's nothing you can do now. I think one of the things that the um, in tyranny of structurelessness that the author particularly talks about is that that, that people deny that a structure exists. Right? Is that, that there's you have this informal hierarchy. But, and then when you, you try to argue against it, uh, it the, the real challenging part is that people deny it. And I think this is the kind of the root of the mistake is that people think that self-organized means unorganized or self-managed means unmanaged. And th that's, that's entirely untrue. In fact, my view is that you, people who are going to be in self-organized and self-managed teams want to be better at management and better at organization then you would want to be in a, in a sort of normal uh, hierarchical structured managed uh, organization because there people will kind of fall back on norms and people kind of understand the rules. And when you go to invent things uh, amongst yourselves, uh, that that's the self part, <laughs> then it helps if you have non-default ideas that if you have some amount of theory to fall back on. And it's the it's the idea that somehow we could have the uh, th this conversation among people with no hierarchy, with no even informal hierarchy. And, and I think that's unrealistic. This is my personal view now, is that and it, and it's, uh, it would be a, a lie. <laughs> and it turns out that lying is not helpful for making decisions. <laughs> and, it's, it, and for me, that, that is, it's much more productive to say, you know, in practice, we know that some people will um, have more influence than others. They will. They will be, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they will be more uh, charismatic. Uh, they will be uh, taller. <laughs> you know, they they will uh, have a gray beard. Uh, just to talk about advantages uh, that I know that I have, if I'm in a conversation with someone, uh, if I'm in a conversation at work, uh, then I know that there are factors that will uh, unconsciously influence people. Uh, regardless of the merits of my argument, and to pretend that these things, these factors, that these human psychological factors don't exist, is, um, I think, a, a, a terrible mistake. 
Indeed. And you mentioned theory. So the great thing is that, that people have studied this. It goes all the way back to at least the 1960s and probably the, the 1960s BC. So this is um, pretty pretty old. And uh, there are some things that people can do. So I think Sarah's question is, um, uh, she didn't ask, she actually didn't ask a specific question, but I think she'd like to know <laughs> what on earth could we do about this? Uh, how could we uh, alleviate some of this suffering? And, and there are some things we can do. What, what can we do? Well, I want to see, well, I want to start with first off the idea of, of understanding that this does matter, and 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 then we can get into the, what would do because it's I think it'd be difficult sometimes to talk about this because people would say like okay yeah so you know what sometimes people are going to get their feelings hurt but you know too bad because the reality is you know we aren't all equal we we do have different l levels of experience and not everyone's going to be heard the same way that's just reality um, why should we care. In fact, we shouldn't care. This is impossible to change, and and I think that's the wrong conclusion. Um, so, as I said, we'll we'll talk about uh, uh, what to do in a moment. But I first want to say the a bit of the evidence about why this matters, and I'm going to pull up uh, a reference here. It's going to be in it's in the uh, show notes, of course. And this is um, Project Aristotle, which we've mentioned before several times. And for people who don't remember, Project Aristotle was a, a long running project at Google very, very uh, heavy data intensive project where they wanted to understand the question of what uh, impacted team performance. And uh, now the the findings, people, a lot of people talk about the findings a lot and they, they, they call out psychological safety. Um, and that's kind of one of the headline findings. Psychological safety is really important. But I think there's a point that people often miss. And this is now from the New York Times article describing it. And they're saying one of the elements that was confusing is that not all the good teams appeared to behave in the same ways. Now, when they studied the groups, they noticed two behaviors that all the good teams generally shared. And we're going to talk about the first of those. So this is a bit of a tease. There's a second one <laughs> that we're not going to talk about today. But the first one was on the good teams, members spoke in roughly the same proportion. A phenomenon, a phenomenon the researchers referred to as equality in distribution of conversational turn-taking. Now, the, and because to me, this is the, the, what, the other thing that came to mind when uh, I read Sarah's email, is, is that, look, it, this matters that everyone on the team has a chance to speak and are heard, <laughs> which is worth, worth adding that, that everyone's people are actually listened to. And it doesn't matter so much how you do it. And this is one of the things that was interesting. Different teams had different ways of achieving that. Uh, um, the, the real the, the question, though, was if you looked kind of at the end of the day and you tallied throughout the day on the good teams, everyone had spoken roughly the same amount. So across the different tasks in the team, across the different meetings, across all the different work they did, um, this is the quote now, as long as everyone got a chance to talk, the team did well. Uh, but if only one person or a small group spoke all the time, the collective intelligence declined. A and that finding, it to me, uh, makes, makes so much sense. And yet it's so easy to overlook. Uh, Squirrel, you and I talk a lot about what a good decision looks like, you know, what, what, or rather what the conversation before a good decision looks like. And, and we talk about the value of diversity in that conversation. But the most fundamental thing about having diversity in a conversation is that the people who, just having the people there isn't enough. In fact, having the people <laughs> there has zero inherent value. What has to happen is some of the people, all of the people have to talk or else you aren't getting the benefit of the actual diversity. 
That's right. And 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 if we have teams and not everyone feels they can contribute, then the collective intelligence of the group is lower because you're not getting the value of what people are saying. So that's, to me, this is like, why does this matter? Well, if we care about having good teams, it, uh, then having everyone have a chance to speak and be heard is not just a question of making people feel good, um, but but actually it's consequential for the team having good outcomes. So finally, <laughs> what do we do about it? And, and, and we can say here in a sense, anything that you do that will result in people uh, ha being able to contribute uh, uh, equally will uh, make a step towards uh, um, having better outcomes. And there's many different ways to do it. And it will vary a bit based on uh, um, how the team working, what the task is at hand. Uh, two examples that I know uh, and, and qu quote quite a lot are one is the core protocols, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And another one is a site with a whole collection of different techniques called Liberating Structures. And Liberating Structures is a, is a, is a site that has um, a whole set, I don't know, something like 30 uh, maybe more uh, of sort of protocols for a group to work to uh, give a chance for everyone to contribute. And uh, they can be picked up with uh, very little, with actually no preparation by most people and, um, and tried out. And there are ways to get people to uh, um, uh, contribute. And there's, there's many different uh, uh, other exercises like this that have this kind of goal. People talk about brainstorming, but if you make it structured, uh, it's even better. You get things like six thinking hats and so on. These are all ways towards uh, protocols that ensure that everyone has a chance for turn-taking. I think most importantly, though, is the, is the discussion on the team about why this matters. Um, and, the, and if you can just do nothing else, but simply at the, at the end of the discussion, say, you know, before the decision, say, have we heard from everyone? Uh, and, and make sure that people have had the chance. And you can check in later, too, and say, you know, do you feel... Uh, that you're hurt on this team. Uh, if you want to be a bit more formal about it, the Google uh, RE Work site uh, actually has a bunch of uh, information about Project Aristotle and some surveys that you can you can find about um, is the team having the sort of behaviors that lead to high performance. But um, I, I think this this question of does everyone speak? Are they listened to? Are, are they given? Uh, a, do they feel heard? Uh, this is such an, an important topic, uh, and and yet it's uh, something that's so easy to overlook and to think it's just a question of of, of people's feelings, um, as though somehow that wouldn't be enough, <laughs> even if it was only people's feelings. Uh, that's that's that that's how I where I typically will talk to people about what they might do to improve this. Uh, any any thoughts from you, Squirrel? Indeed. So I've got a couple. The first is um, I I'm nowhere near as theoretically sophisticated as Jeffrey is, so. I couldn't list all those uh, fantastic protocols and, and they're uh, excellent ones there, which I encourage people to use. I have a very simple one. So if you, if you don't have time to look it up or if you're driving, um, a, a very simple one that I think you taught me, Jeffrey, is um, that if you can get people talking at the beginning of a meeting, they're much more likely to talk in the rest of the meeting. That's anecdotally true. I don't know whether there's um, psychological studies to back it. But um, what I will often do is, and it, by the way, it doesn't matter what they talk about. So it doesn't matter about whether they talk about the topic of the meeting. So what I will often do is um, get everyone to talk about why they've come or what they dreamed about last night or um, what they had for breakfast. Any kind of uh, action that causes everyone in the room, even including the virtual room these days, 
that, that uh, gets them all speaking uh, can be very helpful. And the other is uh, one of my stories I remember, and I don't remember the detail. I don't remember what I did. I probably did that, uh, what did you dream about last night kind of thing at the beginning. I, I don't remember, but I did get everybody talking. I, I had a whole development team discussing their uh, process, their method of getting from a ticket to a live piece of code. And we, I remember we spent quite a long time with a few people talking and drawing a whole process out on the board. What happens next? Oh, then you do the code review, right. And so then, oh, then it goes to QA. And then what happens after that? And what happens if it fails? And we just drew out the whole flowchart. And somebody in the back of the room piped up at the end of all of our wonderful drawing where the informal leaders had created this um, wonderful picture of how things should work. And that person said, you know, actually, the CTO doesn't follow that process. Uh, that person had been the uh, person who'd written the original uh, code and who knew the software in and out and so on. And uh, he turned to her and he said, yeah, actually, you're right. That's the process we normally follow. But when I do it, I skip about half the steps. And that turned into a very useful and productive discussion, which we would not have had <laughs> if that person hadn't said, you know, like the, the kid in the in the story, the emperor doesn't have any clothes here. Hang on. There's something that doesn't happen the way we've drawn it on the board. So that was a case where the diversity of opinion was very helpful and where an informal participant, a person who was not a, a formal leader or informal leader, uh, made a very substantial and consequential decision um, contribution, which led to changes in the process and changes in behavior from the CTO, which were very effective. So it is possible to get these results. But Sarah's right that this is a uh, uh, topic that's worth uh, paying attention to and one that takes some uh, 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 mindfulness and effort in order to address. Yeah, and I would say for anyone who's interested in, in uh, getting more skilled generally, then, uh, of course, the, developing your own conversational skills, uh, such as we talked about in Agile Conversations, is a good place to start. And if you want to look to uh, more generally, you can look at things like the facilitation skills in uh, Roger Schwartz's book uh, on facilitation. Uh, again, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes on that. The Skilled Facilitator uh, is, a, is an excellent resource for uh, looking at group dynamics and uh, being able to intervene in a, in a productive way. Big book. Um, you don't have to read all the words. I didn't. So um, <laughs> I bet Jeffrey did because you're so much more uh, good with these things. But you can you can read some of the stories and it's still worth it. So we'll, we'll definitely include that link. And of course, another place where you can get more material on all of this is conversationaltransformation.com. We like to hear from you there. We've got email and Twitter and everything else. And of course, uh, you can get uh, more free material from us, and, uh, links to the book, uh, dojos that we run, particularly Jeffrey runs, um, to practice some of these methods and the opportunity to ask us more questions, which is exactly what Sarah did. So we'd love to hear from you there. And of course, we'd also like to hear from you uh, when you come back again next Wednesday for another episode of Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl.